Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, 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 and welcome back to this week's edition of Don't Box Me In. I am your host, Lana Reed. Today we get to hear an amazing story. I'm talking about an exceptional story, the kind of story that you think you would only see in a movie theater. I suppose it starts off with a man simply trying to do his job, which leads him down, which leads him down a path of twists and turns into a side of life that many of us only see our favorite actors bring to life. Merle Temple is here with me today to share some of the amazing stories of his life as an undercover law officer to his appointment to a top government position and eventually to his current days as an author. I'm so excited to have him on the show today with me and it is with pleasure that I welcome Merle to the show. Merle, welcome to Don't Box Me In. Uh, Well, hi, Lana. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you for sharing time with me. So, um, you know, Merle, I guess we will start your story somewhere around the the years of 1970, I suppose, when you were in the uh, Bureau, Bureau of Narcotics. Um, not an easy job to report to every day, I assume. Uh, your work in this field eventually led you to go undercover. Did it? Did that happen right away, or was there some sort of transition into that? Uh, well, I left. Uh, I left Ole Miss where I was a student, young and naive, and very wet behind the ears and uh, <laughs> naive. Uh, in the early 70s, uh, President Nixon had just declared the first war on drugs and created what became the DEA at the national level. And a lot of states uh, modeled state agencies after that, and Mississippi did that with the uh, Bureau of Narcotics. So um, I went uh, from uh, college uh, right into the Bureau of Narcotics when it was young, and, uh, and there weren't very many of us. And if you got in trouble, the cavalry wasn't coming because there was no cavalry. <laughs> and so I did go deep undercover in those early days uh, into uh, the drug subculture and, uh, you know, got into some pretty sticky situations. Okay, okay. So you mentioned it was right as Nixon had just proposed all this legislation. So I'm assuming you guys really kind of were winging a lot of stuff. There was no guidelines for a lot of what was going on. So I guess... Um, Things were not as clearly defined as what we see the war on drugs being today, if if that is a fair statement. Oh sure, we uh, it was all brand new, and we were really were kind of making it up as we went along <laughs> at times. Uh, our training was kind of quick and on the fly, and uh, uh, you know you you had to uh, think uh, on your feet uh, uh, because you got into some bad situations where uh, if you weren't able to convince these people as they suspected you of, of being an undercover officer or whatever it uh, could become a, a real problem and and of course when I was working undercover in South Mississippi in 1972 uh, I was by myself working solo and uh, everything kind of went wrong in a proposed heroin deal and uh, I wound up uh, uh, in a house uh, around midnight out in this place, you know, with the moss was hanging off the trees, and uh, it was a scene right out of a B-horror movie, really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, these guys uh, uh, decided to do the deal early, invited me into their home. I really didn't have any choice on the matter. And when I went inside, uh, they put a 
um, uh, shotgun on me and a pistol mm. to my forehead. And, and uh, for the next few hours, uh, he really debated uh, where to dump my body after they <laughs> killed me. They decided just to uh, rob me and take my money uh, and keep their, their heroin, which is always uh, uh, a danger to, to agents working undercover. And uh, these particular guys, one who sat there and watched me, he uh, he ate double-edged Gillette razor blades, wow. uh, chewed them up, swallowed them, uh, bled out at the mouth, uh, it ran down each corner of his mouth. Uh, it really was a scene, uh, like I said, out of some horror or vampire movie, and then swallowed fire. And uh, uh, so that night, my whole life flashed before my eyes. I think it releases something. In you when you think you're really truly about to die, and uh, True. I was able to see things, images from my early early life when I was a toddler uh, with my parents and uh, and everything. So a lot of prayers went up that night. I know, I know. So you said this was around 1972. So about how old were you when you were sitting here with this drug deal going bad? Well, I was in my uh, I was in my early 20s. I was about uh, 23, 24 then. Okay, so. Um, just curious how so you're you're undercover at this time you you're in the middle of this this drug deal that goes bad are there any checks and balances some officers waiting in the wing kind of you know okay we haven't heard from him in like an hour maybe we should check on him or you're just really out there on your own going through all of this yeah in those days it was totally different and of course it came to be and uh i was uh, strictly on my own and uh uh, no one had any idea what was happening to me, and and probably in those days they probably wouldn't have uh, thought anything about it if they hadn't heard from me. Really, in 24 to 48 hours uh, or so, they you know, our, our checks and balances uh, were not what they came to be then, and uh, so I just was left alone to uh, uh, talk my way out of that and uh, uh, do the best I could, and and so many of these. Uh, Type incidents or things that I use in a ghostly shade of pale, my first novel, uh, to um, show how it really was in those days. And uh, many more things happened. I was lured out uh, south of Memphis later by two contract killers, hired to organize crime uh, to assassinate me. And uh, that was that was a standoff and a pretty tense day. And then as time progressed, uh, I became the first captain in the agency. And um, and my men and I were ambushed in uh, another heroin deal and where they had a sniper up on the railroad trestle uh, behind a clump of pine trees with a high-powered rifle. And uh, when we began to arrest his Confederates, he just rained down fire on us and a terrible gun battle ensued. And, and those days were, um, it was just a different time. It was... Some people would call it the Wild West, uh, <laughs> and and it kind of was in, in many ways. And uh, uh, you know, the war was still dragging on in those days. Um, uh, there was civil unrest. Uh, the first big wave of drug, uh, the drug culture, uh, drug abuse, had washed across the country. And I think America was uh, being challenged in many ways on mm-hmm. many different fronts, all all at the same time. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, your story is taking place in um, Mississippi and Tennessee, if I'm correct. And, you know, you think in 1970s and the South, and I mean, just off the top of your head, you would assume that there's not 
such a large drug problem at this particular time. But I mean, clearly from your conversation, um, especially with heroin, it's, it's just really hitting the South and, like you said, other parts of the United States uh, very quickly at this and during these years. Well, it really was, and it was, you know, it was uh, in those days. People ask me how was it different mm-hmm. uh, than than it is today, and uh, I said, well, in many ways, uh, it was different. In those days, uh, young people were very susceptible. They, uh, I think, they made the mistake of um, tying their opposition to the war and to uh, maybe the values of their mother and fathers, uh, mother and fathers. Um, uh, somehow they tied all of that rebellion into ingesting some very hazardous and dangerous chemicals, mm-hmm. and many of them just paid uh, paid the price for it. It was tragic to see uh, so many lives ruined. Some uh, lives ruined were people you know that were very dear to me, who mm-hmm. had uh, everything everything before them. Uh, you know they were brilliant; they could have done anything, but they they were lost. Uh, in that drug culture and just never recovered and some died. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, um, you know, I, I was born in 1969, so I'm, you know, just recall some of the stories of, you know, aunts and uncles telling me, you know, about, um, the real, the complexity that the heroin market really bought, brought to America at that particular time. Um, and it did leave a devastating, you know, impact. We've now moved on to other issues in, in the uh, war on drugs that are now, you know, bringing problems to the United States. But I do recall, like, the heroin um, issue was just very, very prevalent uh, during that time. Um, you know, I was going through your, your website, Merle, and, you know, you have this photo album, and I, I the pictures are so neat and cool. I kind of like looking back in history. Uh, but one of the pictures I saw... Uh, in your photo album was this this bulletproof vest with and it's just blood all over the place now for me for Lana like that would have been it for me you know okay I'm done um, so can you tell us the story behind that picture and did you continue on in the law enforcement industry after that well that uh, the picture you refer to uh, came out of the, the day that we were ambushed um, and uh, I won't spoil it for anybody who might want to <laughs> to read a ghostly shade of pale and tell all of it. But uh, during that day, uh, uh, there were just so many things swirling around us, and uh, there was some dramatic uh, divine intervention that day, mm-hmm. which uh, led me to request uh, that the agents wear uh a bulletproof vest, which were in those days we didn't have anything like what they have today. We had no armor mm. in the vest. They were just kind of these uh, nylon um vest that would stop up to a uh, a thirty eight caliber uh handgun mm-hmm. uh but would not design to stop a high powered rifle. And yeah. the vest that's shown there is a vest that was taken off of an agent who was severely wounded but he would have died that day uh, had I not gone back to get the vest and asked them to wear the vest. And I won't uh, say, I'll just say it was very dramatic, uh, divine intervention that day that led me to even think about that because the agents didn't like to wear them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were hard to conceal and bulky, uh, even working undercover, even in the winter, uh, which that was uh, under a coat. It, was, it still made them uh, self-conscious. 
you know, about wearing something that appeared to be so bulky on, even underneath the coat. And so it took some persuasion um, mm-hmm. uh, to get them to do that. And on this book tour, uh, since last year, I've, I've been reunited uh, with many of those agents, including the agent who wore uh, that vest and was so critically wounded. And I was able to share with them in detail why I was so insistent on uh, them wearing the vest that day. And I told them, I said, you weren't ready to hear the real reason. <laughs> and in those days, uh, really, I wasn't either because mm-hmm. I was uh, a nominal Christian in my faith and uh, gotcha. and uh, wasn't walking closely with God as I am now. Okay, okay. Well, it seems, you know, just listening to the beginning of the story that divine intervention was playing a all along the way there. So um, I'm pretty sure there's some thankful agents out there that were are glad that you made them wear the, that vest that day and, and probably the way you looked out for them all throughout their careers and their time with you. Um, Merle, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Don't Box Me In. I am with Mr. Merle Temple today, the author of A Ghostly Shade of Pale. And before the commercial break, we were talking about uh, his years in, in law enforcement and as an undercover officer. And, um, you know, just listening to your story, um, you know, you're, you're kind of, you have a drug deal going bad. You've got the guy there with the razor blades. You know, they're, they're contemplating where to bury your body. Then you go on and, you know, you have the ambush and, you know, your, your people under your charge are critically wounded. You know, just for me, you know, Merle, cause I can be a chicken at times. It would be a wrap for me. I'm, I'm kind of done. But like, how long did you stay in law enforcement throughout this whole time going, doing this kind of job in the drug culture? Well, uh, well, I stayed there uh, about seven years and had intended probably to, to make a career of it. Uh, but as uh, fate would have it, uh, we were just uh, we were under siege in those days from all fronts. It was just hard to tell who was friend and who was foe, uh, sometimes without a scorecard. And it was just uh, the players were always changing and switching sides, it seemed. And, and uh, we were under siege uh, by a corrupt. Uh, governor and uh, trying to infiltrate and, and uh, uh, corrupt our agency. And, um, and so some things happened which warranted um, a call for a special internal affairs investigation, and the director of uh, the bureau um, asked me if I would head that up. I did, and uh, the powers that be in politics didn't like uh, the truth, and they didn't like what we found. And, uh, so, uh, they began to come after me and, uh, and tried to, um, hurt, uh, hurt some of the, the, the men, uh, in, uh, in our group too. And I finally decided it was just untenable, uh, mm-hmm. to try to stay because they were trying to, people told me they were trying to, um, uh, find something that they said, to quote them, to knock the halo off my head <laughs> because, of, because, of, because the press liked me and, and mm-hmm. viewed me as a straight arrow, and they were afraid to mm-hmm. come after me. So, and what it often happens, and people may not believe it, but, uh, uh, men in power, uh, who will do anything, you threaten that power, 
and that includes uh, framing you or hurting mm-hmm. you, trying to destroy you. And uh, and so I decided that uh, perhaps I should make my graceful exit. And corporate America came along about that time and offered me a uh, a nice position uh, as a security manager in a large corporation. And so reluctantly and sadly, in many ways, I left what was really a crusade to us. It was way more than a job. I mean, we worked uh, seven days a week and long hours. And and uh, sadly to say, too, you know, we had a high divorce rate. And uh, mm-hmm. although I wasn't divorced, but we had a high divorce rate and, and a lot of other problems that uh, – that sprang from that, and uh, some of the agents that I've been reunited with, you know, we've uh, talked about it and uh, uh, celebrated that we survived and, uh, you know, how God was looking out for some of us because we did some things that were just incredibly uh, 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 dumb and uh, and uh, kind of naive, and, <laughs> and some, some got off into some very self-destructive behavior, and so now here in our older age, we, <laughs> we can all get together and look back on it and marvel at it. And, uh, you know, just thankful to be here. Not everybody made it through. One of my men, uh, uh, a, a great young man who just everybody loved and, uh, he was shot and killed at 25 and, mm. you know, frozen forever young. And, um, I guess that was the first uh, funeral I'd ever been to. Mm. You know, where, um, you know, it wasn't someone you knew who was older and perhaps had been wasted by disease and, uh, you know, and he just looked like he was napping in his coffin mm. and it was, uh, it was a crushing time for a lot of us and there were just uh, so many things happening in those days and, um, I guess the backdrop of all of this, you know, the, um, uh, the, the federal government, the intelligence agencies, in those days, were running guns through Mississippi. They were using um, small airfields, which we had a gazillion of, crop mm-hmm. the fields and so forth. They would hire mercenary pilots to jump guns into Central America, you know, for, for whichever side we were supporting at the time. And um, the only problem was uh, the mercenaries didn't come back empty. They came back loaded with drugs and the only question was whether it was sanctioned or unsanctioned, and mm. you just had so much money, too, uh, filtering down to corrupt government at all levels. I mean, just a huge amount of money coming in to uh, pay off people, and, uh, you know, so it was just trickery all around, and it was very easy to get disillusioned when mm-hmm. you come into it so naive and you're wanting to do the right thing and go in like the Lone Rangers and, Mm-hmm. And right all the wrongs, you know, and then you find out that, uh, some of the very people who are supposed to be your allies are your worst enemies. And, and through, uh, through into the mix of that, organized crime was everywhere, um, and the mafia and then the southern, uh, version of that called the Dixie Mafia was very active. And, uh, um, and then you throw into the mix of all of that. You know, the Klan was still active, and, uh, you know, we encountered some of them. And, mm-hmm. you know, all, all of that swirl of all that mix is is all, I uh, hope, hopefully captured um, uh, in a very entertaining way uh, in my book. And uh, and the book has just been received uh, so well, as, as, you, as I think I told you, you know, that uh, Criminal Minds in Hollywood read the manuscript. And, uh, invited us. To, they loved it and Jim Fomini, uh, read it and he's a writer producer there. 
invited us to come to Hollywood, and we did. We signed for the cast of Criminal Minds and Major Crimes and did uh, radio and TV around L.A. and Beverly Hills. And uh, just a fairy tale experience for us. I told my wife when we were driving down through Beverly Hills, uh, they were all looking around uh, wide-eyed. I said, <laughs> I said, Judy, I said, uh, we are the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> <laughs> ah, one of my favorite shows. Huh? Well, well deserved though. Well deserved. You know, I'm I'm listening to your story, and I'm I'm sure we're only getting bits and pieces of it. But what for me right now, my takeaway, and it it seems like it would be a painful place to be, is here you are, a man, a young man, and you think you're out there fighting the good fight, and the people that you think you're fighting the good fight with are you know, just as corrupt, if not more than who you're in battle with. And, you know, I think the emotional weight of that, um, you know, that had to be something at that particular time um, that, you know, I'm just amazed that, you know, you kind of transition through. Um, so I just, just wow to that one right there. Um, so you deserve to be the Beverly Hillbillies now and, and in this place in life and to enjoy, you know, all of the uh, trials and tribulations that you have went through. So. Jethro, come on to Beth- Beverly Hills there. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you went into, after you left uh, law enforcement, you went into the corporate world, right? Yeah, I went into the corporate world. I went into the bill system. Uh, first as a security manager, uh, working uh, corporate security issues, and uh, then later branched out into different areas uh, of the company and uh, the business side and research side, and then finally uh, into uh, public relations and marketing. I became a, uh, a district manager um, for, uh, in that field and learned a lot there, which is really quite helpful in the book world about marketing. And uh, uh, enjoyed uh, enjoyed that job, uh, but also uh, found trickery there also in, uh, in the corporate world and. And, and and especially in politics, uh, I became involved uh, being the eternal crusader, uh, the, uh, trying to save the world. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I uh, uh, got involved in a lot of political campaigns, some presidential campaigns, some local campaigns, and um, always on the lookout for uh, some underdog uh, <laughs> running a, against the entrenched power. You know, regardless of party, uh, you know, just uh, somebody who wanted to do the right thing, a reformer, and uh, when if everybody gave them no chance, and uh, and they were underfunded and uh, uh, surrounded, well, that's all of what appealed to me. <laughs> Go for the underdog, okay. <laughs> they're always the best ones to root for, anyways. You know, no, everybody writes them off, and they're probably always the best candidates for the job, anyways, because. You know, they're, they're in it for the heart and soul of the matter, not for the status quo sometimes. So, you know, sometimes the underdog is always the best one to root for. Um, but you're, you're rooting for the underdog. Um, I mean, it just seems to be who you are. Um, and like I said earlier, you know, fighting the good fight, uh, even in this world, you know, you, you think you've escaped the, the life of crime and drugs and all of that stuff. Um, but even now that you're in the corporate field, you still, ran into another wall there uh, while you were in the corporate world, correct? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, I uh, 
people ask me what uh, what will happen to Michael, the central character in the Ghost of mm-hmm. Pale, who's based on me. They said, what's going to happen uh, to him in book two, the sequel, because it's the trilogy. And A Rented World is the trilogy, and we're just getting finishing up the editing uh, now and I hope to be out in November with that. And I said, well, I said, Michael, we'll, do, we'll find out that the uh, organized crime figures and uh, professional criminals who tried to kill him were really nothing compared to the uh, political criminals that he would encounter uh, as he moved into the corporate and political worlds. And and he finds out and uh, that... Um, that uh, you know, there are a lot of dangerous people in the world, and uh, some of the most dangerous are, are folks who wear suits and uh, mm-hmm. sit in big offices and and uh, do some things that are just uh, they are not good. And uh, these people, a lot of them, are just coreless and they don't believe in anything, uh, and then except money and power. And uh, like Lord Acton said, you know, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I saw that many, many times, and. And I was scolded, uh, <laughs> even though I was a top-ranked manager in a corporation. Uh, I was uh, scolded after I managed a local uh, campaign. They call it the biggest upset in that state in 50 years. And and uh, championed a young uh, 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 newcomer to politics, a lady who was running for against an entrenched incumbent uh, in a legislature and uh and we defeated him, and they call it the biggest upset, as I said, in 50 years. And uh, so uh, we won against all odds, but then the corporation uh, turned on me mm. and uh, and called me in. And, and really, just uh, it's all detailed uh, fictionally, a lot of it drawn from that in, in, in a rented world. But they called me in to tell me, you know, to ask me who I thought I was. Mm. With my meaningless little crusades, and it had upset a lot of powerful people who were putting our legislation on hold. That was important to the corporation, and and uh, they just uh, uh, said that I should give up my First Amendment rights, and uh, I should just be a, a good little boy and just mm-hmm. go along and get go along and get along, and and right or wrong, go along. It's <laughs> never been in my uh, my vocabulary. Never been who Mr. Temple is, huh? <laughs> okay. No, um, <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to take a, a quick commercial break and we're going to talk more about this as soon as we get back. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, hello. Back, I am with the author of A Ghostly Shade of Pale, Mr. Merle Temple, and uh, we've been spending today talking about his time as an undercover law enforcer, and uh, then after that, his uh, merge into the corporate world. And uh, you said you had just before the commercial break, you said you were responsible for you know one of the the biggest upsets uh, there um, in fifty years, and uh, because of this, you know you got some backlash from it. And, you know, they told you, you know, go sit down somewhere. But you, sometimes the powers that be are bigger than us and they have tools in place that we just can't defeat. Uh, and you ended up, because of this work that you were doing, uh, you ended up spending some time in prison. Is that correct? Is that how the story flows? Well, it, uh, 
what happened was that uh, after that meeting, uh, I just I demanded an early separation, early retirement, and a separation package, and uh, and I left uh, the um, the corporate world, and uh, was under consideration for a uh, uh, top administ- appointment in the new administration as U.S. Marshal, um, uh, which is a political appointment. Okay. And uh, and and uh, that uh, uh, that uh, appointment was was blocked more or less by some people uh, in uh, Congress who who weren't happy that I had defeated the incumbent. It wasn't mm-hmm. that they liked the incumbent. I don't think they did. Uh, but they uh, but incumbents stick together, and uh, mm-hmm. I think their thinking was if uh, if he would do that to him, he might do it to us. Sure. And uh, and might not uh, play the game, and so so finally the uh, congressman who had nominated me finally gave up, and uh, then I was appointed uh, as uh, deputy state superintendent of education uh, for in the state, and uh, as a political appointment, and because I had been an education reform advocate for a long time in the corporate world, and. It chaired superintendent searches and set on national education panels. So it was, it was a good fit. Okay. Uh, but it was a treacherous, um, environment that I went into. And, um, there were are many things that happened there, um, in Atlanta. But, but, uh, one of those was they wanted to, um, uh, the, the governor of that state, uh, Wanted to um, do a lot of things in government, and he they needed uh, money to do them, and they began to eye a lot of the federal funds coming uh, from from Washington and uh, uh, trying to uh, get those funds diverted mm-hmm. uh, for non non education uses, and um, and uh, the uh, the U.S. Secretary of Education had told me uh, not to. Allow those funds to be diverted. They would prosecute anyone who did. Good. And uh, and then uh, the day came when uh, when the the two parties cut a deal together uh, between the White House and the governor. And uh, I got a conference call with about uh, twelve uh, uh, political operatives from the White House and and elsewhere in Washington, telling me that everything had changed. And uh, they were going to allow the diversion hmm. uh, of, of the money, even though the U.S. Secretary said they would prosecute them. And uh, and uh, so uh, the, another deal had been cut. I mean, it was just one more uh, one more example of you know what uh, I and Michael in the book you know became so disillusioned about because everywhere you turned, there really was just uh, nobody that you could trust. And uh, nobody really seemed to believe in anything. And out of that, and in our efforts to um, to uh, to resist that and fight that, uh, you know, we made some mistakes. There's no doubt about that mm-hmm. in our zeal, because no one would come to our rescue. Uh, the press wouldn't. The uh, uh, both parties were in collusion, so they certainly wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, we made some mistakes, but out of that. Uh, they uh, they indicted us when when wow. my boss ran for governor against the incumbent governor and lost, and then they came after us and uh, and indicted us and, and no one was ever held accountable 
for all of those millions of dollars that were diverted, either criminally or civilly. But they but they came after us, and and one thing happened uh, after another, and um, it's a long story. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know, out of that, again, I uh, uh, wouldn't wouldn't go along and get along uh, <laughs> with, with, with the government, and, and I paid the price for it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm proud of it, and that was saying it was the smartest thing in the world I could have done, because it certainly wasn't. Mm-hmm. At that time, because I had the people, the people depending on me mm-hmm. at that time. And my first wife who was very ill and near death. And, uh, uh, so, but out of that, um, you know, um, uh, I actually was given a long prison sentence, longer than some people who, who do a very, um, you know, violent crimes to people. Yeah, so you did um, eight years in prison, and, you know, um, I like to tell people that, you know, sometimes we're put in the most uncomfortable situations for a purpose, and during your eight years in prison, um, you did do something very wonderful with your time there. Well, actually, I uh, I was sentenced to eight years, and uh, I served uh, five and a half, Okay, uh, as, as it turns out, and... Uh, um, but, um, it was, it was crushing. It was as hard as anyone can imagine. And really, the people who haven't been through that can mm-hmm. imagine how crushing it was. And, uh, but, uh, we started a, a prison ministry inside, which went on to be the, uh, we think the most successful, uh, inmate led, uh, prison ministry, probably in the history of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, we exposed hundreds of men, uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ and, uh, were hopefully a force for good and turning many of them away from the dark side and, uh, was quite threatened, was threatened by, by gangs many times inside for leading people away from the darkness and toward the light mm-hmm. and, uh, threatened with physical harm, uh, threatened, uh, with contraband being planted in, in my room. Mm. Get me, get me shipped to a higher security facility on the other side of the country where I'd never get a visit again. And, and there were, and also there were many corrupt officials on the inside, <laughs> you know, who were, who were in with the gangs. And, uh, it was, so it was just, uh, the thread continued, um, and everything. But in that environment, though, when I was deep, deep in the valley, and uh, so low down on it, there's only one way to look. And, that was, uh, mm-hmm. and that's where God broke me and changed everything in my life and showed me, you know, uh, made clear to me just who he was and how he saved me all those times from, from death and uh, just changed everything. And nothing's ever been the same since then. So uh, man means many things for bad, but uh, God uh, uses it for good. True, true, because I, I was going to say, you know, just listening to everything, you know, you, you could sit there and say, you know, I just can't make any friends in high places. But if you step back and look at it, you have the best friend in the highest place that you could possibly have. So everybody else really is so minor after that because, you know, you're here today to tell this story um, and. You know, just listening to, you could have been crushed on any occasion. You could have not been with their, us today to tell this story. But the fact that you are here, you know, shows that, you know, you're walking the walk with a very, very special friend that, uh, 
you know, has kept you all these years. So, I mean, it's just, it's just a beautiful thing. I mean, cause some of us could not have taken all of that. I mean, here it is, you know, I've, I've tried to do my best. I've tried to do the good fight, you know, and all of this stuff. And I'm still getting knocked and kicked and punched around. And, you know, I'm sitting in here, you know, doing this five and a half years time. And for, I don't belong here, you know, and it, it, it can get just, why me? Why me? But, um, you know, well, I, 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 Marlana, I told people that uh, when I stopped trying to make a, <laughs> I stopped trying to play, let's make a deal with him and realize <laughs> he is a deal. Yeah, and I began go. to pray, I began to pray not for deliverance yes. anymore. I began to just pray that he would throw me, show me his threads of good and purpose woven into those crushing blankets of pain so mm-hmm. that I might understand and become a better servant. And okay. when I could pray that and mean that, Everything, everything changed on the inside and, uh, we just saw many, many miracles and those will be, uh, uh, written about fictionally, um, in the third book of the trilogy, hopefully out late next year. And that will be, that will be called Redeemed. That'll be the third in the trilogy. Okay. Okay. So, um, you, you get out of, you serve your time and you get out, um, is that when you start writing the first one, A Ghostly Shade of Pale, or or when did you start writing that that first book of the trilogy? Well, I've been there. I've been playing with it for a long time, and uh, and uh, just I, I asked him to help me write three books mm-hmm. that would be so hopefully so engaging and the writing so intriguing that uh, the secular world perhaps. Uh, couldn't look away from us as they do some authors who write Christian books or Christian themed books. And, um, and, uh, so asking for that help and it's, it's right on track. Uh, we have been received into too many areas and, uh, uh, with open arms, uh, by people who perhaps may not be believers or just that genre may not appeal to them. But when they read this book, uh, it's, uh, they're, uh, are captivated, many of them say by it. They, uh, they call it evocative of those great southern writers. One mm-hmm. person did in Beverly Hills and, and, uh, immersing the reader in, in the feeling of total reality as Criminal Minds, uh, General Committee had written and so on. And so it just opened so many doors and we've done everything that the so-called experts, uh, told me couldn't be couldn't be done and then they come back and they say we're the experts <laughs> how, how did that happen I said, well there's only one expert that i listened to there you go there you go and how long has a ghostly shade of pale been out now ghostly's been out about a year and it's still being discovered and uh and we'll say too of all the many adventures i've had i uh I uh, had dinner with Morgan Freeman the other night and uh, oh. sang songs with him at the Ground Zero Blues Club in Clarksdale, uh, which is where he's from and which he owns. And and uh, so as soon as Jim Clemente uh, at Criminal Minds finishes the screenplay that he's working on now from Ghostly, uh, there, where I'm going to take it over to uh, to Morgan and see what he thinks. He likes to read the screenplay and not the book. You know, the screenplay is about a fourth the length of a book. Yeah, and it's written written in that uh, the, you know the world they live in, and uh, as actors and producers, and Morgan has his own production company called Revelation Productions, and 
Um, and I think we can deal together. We hit it off. I don't think he would ask me um, to trash it up. Some in Hollywood Hollywood might be proud to do from what I've seen. And uh, because he, he's from Mississippi, he loves to do great things for Mississippi and he does a lot of great things for Mississippi. And, uh, this is a good story. And, um, and so I think it'll appeal to him. And plus there's a great, uh, there's a great party in it for him if he would actually (laughs) appear in the movie of this uh, nightclub owner at Boneville Street in Memphis. Oh, okay. not, a, not really a good guy, but he's not totally bad. And he befriends Michael, the character based on me. And that character has a lot of depth uh, to it and, uh, and everything. And I think that'd be uh, perfect for Morgan. Yeah, good stuff. Oh, wow. You know, like it's now everything, the blessings are coming and it's all, you know, happier days ahead. That's good stuff to hear. So we're going to um, take the last break of the day. When we come back, I want to talk more about the trilogy and what's coming up for Mr. Merle. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today I have been spending time with an amazing man with an amazing story, Mr. Merle Temple, author of A Ghostly Shade of Pale. And this this book is actually a trilogy. So the first one is A Ghostly Shade of Pale, like I mentioned. What will be the titles of the next two again? Well, uh, Ghostly Shade of Pale is the first, and A Rented World will be out hopefully in November. Okay. And uh, then Redeemed will be the third in the trilogy. It'll be out hopefully late next year. And uh, you, know, you can get those at uh, Amazon, either on uh, in print books or e-books, and Barnes & Noble has them. And uh, I think now you can get them through Books A Million and uh, ChristianBook.com and Lifeway. Uh, we've... we've uh, Really been blessed in uh, getting the books uh, accepted by a wide uh, variety of vendors. I wanted to tell you that I was listening to your commercials. Mm-hmm. I kept hearing the the diet ads, and uh, and I want to tell you that was a a problem for me out on the road eating too well. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I got to well, got out one morning. And I could hardly uh, snap my pants, uh, and, and accuse the dry cleaners of messing up my pants. And when I was having dinner with Morgan in his in his club. Uh, they brought me a big platter of uh, fried catfish and fried okra and all the things we love in the South. And, and mm-hmm. I just ate my portion and, uh, and a motion for the waiter. He could pick it up. And, and I hear that voice there in the subdued lighting of the nightclub. That voice we've all heard in all so many movies. Morgan Freeman, yes. Morgan, he leaned over and said, what's the matter? You don't like it? And I said, no, I said, no Morgan, I love it. I said, I can't hardly get in my pants anymore. I said, be good. <laughs> he just died laughing, and you know, they were such a nice man, and we just, we laughed, we sang songs together, and uh, before the night was over, uh, he got up from our table and went up and sang a solo. He sang Al Green's Let's Play Together. Well, go ahead, Mr. Freeman. <laughs> I've got Was... it all on my Android phone, too. I think I'm going to post it up on YouTube. It's a real temple presents Morgan Freeman's uh, new career. Oh, there you go. In case the acting doesn't pan out for him, which I can't see that happening, at least he can do the singing thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. But I appreciate you. I, uh, uh, I appreciate you having me on. It brings back good memories about going out to L.A. Uh, you know, we had an hour on Frank Sontag's show on KKLA, and 
interviewed on Media Mayhem there in Beverly Hills with Allison Hopeweiner and meeting all the nice folks out there. And guys, since those days, you know, we have uh, signed in Malibu. We set a, a record for author signings in Las Vegas at Barnes and Noble, and uh, just did so many uh, things that uh, people thought were impossible. And been on radio everywhere from American Family Radio to Sirius Radio, and Lana was even on uh, uh, Israel National Radio the other day. What a thrill that was! There you go, there you go. So you're currently on book tour now, and you're uh, where are you at in your particular part of the tour? What state? Well, I hate to tell you, but I'm sitting here right now as we speak. I'm watching the waves roll in to the white sand here in the Fort Walton Beach, hopeless island. <laughs> Making people jealous, huh? <laughs> it is Make- so beautiful here, and we uh, we've we, we're on a, we've had eight straight fill-outs on this tour, and um, and uh, then I've been invited to do some private signings, and uh, uh, became friends with one of the cast members of the original Godfather movie. Okay. Down here, and uh, next week I've been invited to uh, go out to a school here and uh, speak to a class of uh, uh, gifted students uh, about uh, being an author and writing, and how it's never too late, and to never, 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 never give up on their dreams. There you go. There you go. And where are you going to after Florida? What's What's the next stop? Well, when we leave here in, uh, on October 6th, we head up to Montgomery, Alabama, mm-hmm. and do a signing at Books a Million there, and we go to a little place called Utah, Alabama, <laughs> E-U-T-A-W, not the other <laughs> one, and a little, a little arts club there. And uh, so we play all kind of different venues um, and uh, meet the nicest people out on the road, and we see so many miracles out on the book tour. and. And when we sign, a lot of the beauty is, um, uh, not to criticize anybody else there, uh, but, uh, most authors want to get in and get out, you know, and some are very shy and don't engage people, but I, I love to engage everyone. I never meet a stranger, as you may can tell, and, mm-hmm. and I, I want to hear their stories and tell our stories, and we, we meet people all across the country that we know that, um, that uh, that we were meant to meet and we become friends with them, people we would never have known, and uh, and we were just uh, better for it all. Okay, okay. So real quick, I think you mentioned it, but one more time, where can people pick up a copy of the book? Oh, probably the easiest thing would be to go to Amazon.com. That's where most people buy their books nowadays. Uh, but you can get them at Barnes and Noble through their website, or at Lifeway Christian Bookstore, or at Books a Million. Uh, now too, and uh, uh, and if you ever want, ever want to send me a message, you can go on my uh, website at merletemple.com and send me a message and look at some of our pictures, some of the pictures from with the cast of Criminal Minds, and uh, just a lot of different stuff. There, you know, we we have seen a lot, and we love to share it, and and uh, just to encourage people, especially people who are down in the valley like I was, mm-hmm. to let them know the sun's coming up. You know, and uh, but God is still God. And you know that was going to be uh, sort of my next question. You know, when people are reading um, a ghostly shade of pale, and then the the next two books that are going to follow that, um, what is the the message that you would like people to take away from reading your work? Well, I, I one one message is a warning uh, to paraphrase Thoreau. You know, that all is necessary to lose yourself in this world is to be turned around once with your eyes closed. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that is so true, and that's maybe one thing throughout all the books. But also, you know, to acknowledge, you know, that um, this is just a rented world is where I draw the title from in book two. And we're just travelers, just pilgrims passing through on our way to eternity, and this is not our home. And mm-hmm. and uh, everything before us is, is fading away even as we look at it. It's just an illusion, and uh, we just can't lose our, lose sight of who and what uh, never mattered and who always will. All right, all right. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, we are at the end of the hour here. Um, so the next place we will see you is Alabama, right? You said Utah? Yeah, well, Utah, Montgomery, Utah, and then hopefully back in L.A. In okay. The spring, we'll come back with book two to see our friends out there. Hopefully get to see you out there in person. Cool stuff, cool stuff. Yeah, I was on your um, Facebook page, and, you know, they have this thing, what is it called? Man Crush Monday or something, this ha- little hashtag thing that goes on social media. And you have my Man Crush um, uh, guy there, Shamar Moore, on your Facebook page. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, so um, hopefully we'll see you out here with uh, Criminal Minds putting together what they're working on. And we'll get to hear that lovely voice, Mr. Morgan Freeman, involved with your work. I mean, it's just phenomenal that all that you've been through and all of the, the heartache and the pain that now these days that you're living now are just so blessed and, you know, so much full of light and so joy and the, and the blessings are just falling into place. So, you know, it's just a wonderful story to hear. Um, you know, out of out of that murk and darkness, that you know there is a beauty at the end there. So just just an amazing story, and just wish you much much more blessings. And I do hope to see you when you come to LA. Oh, thanks, Lonnie. It was a blessing to talk with you. All righty, my guest today has been Mr. Merle Temple. Please visit his website, merletemple.com. M E R L E Temple.com. Make sure you get a copy of his book, A Ghostly Shade of Pale. And uh, once again, I've had a wonderful time chatting with you today. I wish you many, many, many more blessings, Mr. Murr. Okay? Thanks so much. Okay, that is all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and I will see you all next week.